electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, the next catalyst for stocks now that big tech earnings are in the books. What will drive your money in the months ahead? We discuss and we debate that with our investment committee. Joining me for the hour today, Joe Terranova, Pete Njerian. Shannon Sakosha is the chief investment officer at Boston Private Wealth. Richard Saperstein, Hightower Treasury Partner CIO, also one of Barron's top 100 financial advisors. Michael Farr is back with us, the president of Farr, Miller & Washington. Good to see everybody. Let's go to the wall. Stocks are, well, early gains mostly evaporated, as you see. Uh, not much out of the Dow and the S&P today. NASDAQ uh, off its highs, too, still is the outperformer. It's been on a run lately, as you know. Uh, Rich Saperstein, I want to begin with you, because the last time that you were on with us, and it's always good to get a top financial advisor's perspective on things, you said you were, quote, quote unquote, way overweight growth. So where are you today now that these big tech earnings are, are in the books? We're starting to look forward. We're a, little, we're a little bit less way overweight growth, but we still believe growth is the place to be going forward. So investors have to realize that there are strong pre and post COVID tech trends that will remain in place and only accelerate. Digital engagement's gonna increase, 5G, cloud, online commerce, software. And all these trends are accelerating now and they were pulled forward by COVID. So when you think about where your portfolio wants to be positioned over the next three to five years, it's very important to look at these demographic shifts and a lot of the trends that are deeply rooted and accelerating. Yeah. Pete, you know, if you, if you look at what's happened from big tech over the last week or so, there's, there's every reason in the world why somebody would want to stay with that trade, right? D- doesn't, you know, <laughs> Apple, Facebook, Amazon, and then really Alphabet, which seems to be the standout, has just showed you this is why you've been in this trade and this is why you want to stay in this trade. Yeah. I totally agree with you, Scott. I mean, I, we kept hearing people come on all the time saying, oh, yeah, it's a rotation out of growth. We're all going to value. I never bought into that trade. I, I, I think you always want to have quality first. And quality, for me, still stands out with technology. And these technology stocks just continue to surprise. And the numbers just continue to get bigger and bigger. And the strength that we've seen out of that, you look at the, you look at the XLK or you look at even just the individual names like you just mentioned, whether it's Microsoft or Apple, they ran into earnings. Sure, they had a little bit of a pullback, but we've had a nice, uh, a decent little bounce so far. And take, take a look at Facebook. I think that these names all continue to move to the upside. I agree with Rich. He's talking about overweight. I think you got to be overweight in, this, in the areas where you can find quality, you can find growth, and you don't have all as much nervousness as you do in some of these others. Um, I still think there's plenty of upside to come here in the technology space. I mean, Shan, you know, you, you own both uh, Amazon and, and Alphabet. And Alphabet, which has been a laggard over the past few years, uh, knocked a cover off the ball. Stock hits a new high today. Uh, the street is tripping over itself now to raise price targets on it. you got the first $3,000 price target uh, on Alphabet. That's uh, over at Susquehanna, reiterates their, their positive view. That's a 
upside. 56%, 3,000 the price target. You know, when you go down the list of the other target bumps, you go back to 2550, 2500, you know, and so on down, maybe a couple hundred, few hundred bucks from there. 3,000? Is that possible? It certainly seems possible. I mean, I think if we were talking six months ago, you'd be shaming me for not being in some of these hotter technology names um, that were associated with work from home. But I think, you know, Pete makes a great point. You've got to look at the quality of your portfolio. And if you think about just the massive amount of capital expenditure that these tech companies have been able to, to make into their businesses over the last several years, sure, there have been some losers, but there have been some winners too. And I think homegrown innovation, which is what these companies have focused on, I think that allows them to create the platform and the foundation within their business to be able to go out and grow. And so we don't, we're always looking at what they're acquiring, where they're tucking in, what technology they're acquiring to be able to improve their products and you know get more of their the wallet share and the total addressable market for their myriad of different areas of emphasis. But we're looking at the wrong thing. We should be looking at what they're doing internally that is creating synergies in these businesses that can continue to drive higher profits and better earnings over time. And so, you know, I think if you're thinking about it just from a stock market performance perspective, are there going to be outperformers and underperformers in this group? Are these technology stocks going to continue to outperform the index through, you know, the foreseeable future? Not necessarily. They may trade more in line with the index, depending on what's happening from an economic perspective. But they're certainly going to be able to continue to grow their earnings. And if your investment process is focused on that, these have to be in your portfolio. Michael, what about valuation? You know, as, as you've had multiple expansion, you you've certainly have had, based on what their historical average has been, you, you've had a, a, a bump up in the valuations of, of the fangs. Now, because they traded sideways and some traded lower from September until a short time ago, some of the valuations came down. Is Alphabet too expensive here now or not? It's fully valued, Scott, I think. And it's, you know, so it's growing earnings. And it's got earnings growth that is well superior to the S&P 500 average. And I mean, well superior. So you pay a premium for that premium growth. One of the biggest sins I think an investor can commit is Malthusian thinking, uh, just sort of finding a, some sort of straight line projection from today's business model. And it's a larger sin when you do it with tech. I think that Google just proved over the course of the past year with the challenges of COVID and everything else, how they've been able to pivot, how they've been able to innovate, how they've been able to find revenues in new places and adapt. When a company can do that and continue to grow, I think you have to look at new opportunities for growth for that company. So I've owned Google for a long time. It wasn't a great performer last year, but longer term, their ability to create and capture revenues and even expand what was thought to be beyond their previous total addressable market is now actually bigger. They're able to gain in those markets. It's very hard to bet against these companies that are able to grow the way these companies are able to grow. Joe, what about Amazon? You know, I talk about lofty price targets. You've got the first 5,000 plus price target today on Amazon, 5,200 from 4,000. That's reiterated positive over at, at Susquehanna. Um, I mean, that, that's lofty, too. What do you think about that in light of the news of, you know, the Bezos uh, and Jaffe 
uh, Jassy, excuse me, uh, news. Well, Andy, Andy Jassy, we'll, we'll get them there. And I think it's dependent upon an investor's time frame. I think the problem for Amazon and for all of these mega cap technology stocks is that the expectation for 2021 was so high. It became a conversation, Scott. If you're not going to give me this 50 to 75 percent return that you gave me in 2020, then the outcome's binary. I don't want to own these names anymore. And I just don't think there's justification in that. These companies, as everyone has rightfully identified already, they are experiencing significant revenue growth, but more importantly, engagement is so incredible. So just look at the engagement, going back to Alphabet for a second, with YouTube and the remarkable 50% growth there. So I think Amazon last night, the operating income was a little bit weak. I think the expectations were incredibly high. And I think folks look at that and say, okay, if you're not going to be 5 to 10% higher on earnings, well, then I'm going to have some price disappointment. And I just think that's the wrong way to look at it. You've got to take the long-term approach with all these mega cap technology companies. Yeah. Bear with me one second. Let me get to Phil LeBeau, who has a news alert for us on General Motors. And uh, Phil, uh, something tells me this has to do with the chips. Yeah, the chip shortage that's been hitting the entire auto industry. For a while, General Motors was able to make uh, adjustments, and they had done a lot of pre-ordering that helped them weather the storm. Well, now they're getting hit like everybody else. And so the company is going to be adjusting its shifts at four plants starting next week. We're talking about the Fairfax plant outside of Kansas City, a plant in Ontario, Canada, as well as a plant down in Mexico. And then they're going to half production at a plant over in Korea. What's interesting here is that GM is doing what we've seen other automakers try to do as well. They are trying to take production out of the lower volume, less profitable models and keep production as close to as high as possible with things like full size pickups, the higher uh, profitability or higher profit uh, SUVs. So the models that are impacted here, let's take Fairfax uh, outside of Kansas City, the Malibu and the X-T4. Um, It doesn't take a rock science to figure out they're not making a ton of money on the Malibu. They are making it on their full-size pickups. So what they're trying to do is make sure that they have enough of the semiconductors that are needed for the full-size pickups. And again, we've seen this with other automakers as well. It's not a surprise that GM is now adjusting their production uh, because of this global shortage in semiconductors. Phil, interesting news. Thank you for that. Pete, uh, this stock's been a home run. Understatement of the year, yeah. uh, I suppose. You own calls, <laughs> right, in, in General Motors. I'm looking yep. over the, at my screen. Over the past three months, it's up better than 50%. Um, and, you know, over yeah. the last 12 months, it's up the same amount. And the bulk of that is, is a recent move. Right. And I think what we've seen, we've continued to see the option activity just go higher and higher and higher, Scott. Expectations are very, very strong for GM. And I think they should be because we're talking about exactly what Phil was saying, which is, hey, they are willing to make the tough decision and say, we are going to shift and our pivot is going to be, we're going to where the money really is. And we're going to take the profits and move that to where we actually make the most money. And that might hurt some of the other models, but we're going to go to the expensive ones. Obviously, the pickup trucks being one of those. That XT4 <clears throat> is an unbelievable truck. But there are multiple different areas in GM where they've got much better price margins for sure. And that's exactly what they're targeting. I think they're doing everything right. It's a bit of a headache for them, I'm sure, to be able to go through this process. 
process. But this just shows you they are willing to do what they need to do to make sure that that profitability standpoint is going to be there. And it sure looks to me like it's going to be because we know the demand is there. Now they've just got to make the profits and they're shifting to the high profit vehicles. That makes total sense right now. Okay. So, you know, we see the stock you know, peel off a bit from its intraday high, it's still good for 2%. And as I said, over the last three months, it's up 52 plus percent. The 52-week high on General Motors is just shy of $57, 56.97. So it's just a few bucks below that. I want to get back to Amazon, okay? For the purpose of, of thinking about as a, a shareholder or a prospective shareholder, and maybe the latter, more importantly, um, here we are talking uh, every day now about this retail renaissance, okay? And I'm thinking about, and I've raised this issue, you know, a long time ago on, on this show. People are talking about it, sending this idea to me too. The idea of an Amazon stock split, okay? Now that you've had, Joe, a change in leadership, not to suggest in any way, shape, or form that Jeff Bezos wasn't shareholder friendly. Because if you look at the stock price, and the amount of value that he's delivered to shareholders, he was obviously shareholder friendly. However, is it possible that one of Jassy's most significant moves early on could be splitting the stock and opening it up to a whole new crop of investors, the likes of which we've been talking about ad nauseum every day for the last few weeks at least? The, re the retail trader, the retail investor, they already have the opportunity uh, for that stock split via fractional shares. So uh, I'm not necessarily sure if, yeah, that's if not the that same thing. needs to be. That's not really the same, right? It's not exactly the same thing, right? I mean, well, it's not it's, the same thing. It's, it, it, it's, it's not the same exact thing, but it serves the same purpose. It gives the ability of the retail investor uh, who does not want to go out and spend the 33 or, or $3,500 for the Amazon single share, they've got the ability to buy a fractional share. So I think it, it serves a similar purpose. Uh, does he split the stock? I, I'm not necessarily sure that that's needed. Maybe if he does, okay, that's viewed as a good thing. But, but I, don't, I don't think that's, that's the ultimate referendum. Why on wouldn't you? What his uh, initial... Let me ask you that. Why wouldn't you? Right? I mean, you, what are you going to... Why doesn't... You know, why why doesn't than, what, other right, than liking why, to look at the nice big number, why, why wouldn't you? Well, Warren Buffett always talks about not uh, splitting stocks. There are certain companies that, that don't believe it. They like the pristine nature of seeing where their stocks trade at a high price point. Um, I, I don't know. Um, if, you know. If you suspect that that's going to make uh, the engagement for retail investors better, okay, I, I'm with you on that. I, I, I'll see that. But I think the ability for them through fractional shares to get into the stock is already there. Well, I mean, if that's the case, then no one would ever split their stock again. Sh Shannon, I mean, what, what about that notion? Is that something that a retail investor should think about, the, the idea that this change of leadership in Amazon could result in the split of a stock? I think there's always a possibility of a stock split. And when you get to the levels that we're at right now, if you look at the price of Amazon relative to other names in the index, I, I, I don't disagree with Joe, though. I, I don't I think. You know, this was much a much bigger issue, issue a decade ago when you couldn't buy fractional shares. And um, there is the, you know, the caveat here is that, you know, perhaps they don't split the stock because maybe they don't want to necessarily invite some of the speculative activity of last week. Um, you know, if you see it that way, which I don't. But I think that there is, you know, there's the potential to what I think what that would do if he split the stock 
was I think it would just be a move that could cement that he's in charge now. And so from a from an optics perspective, maybe that's something that doesn't necessarily reflect a change in the strategic direction of the business, but shows that perhaps the company will be managed differently. And that's the only reason that I can think. I don't think there's really a good rationale from a retail investor perspective to split the stock at this point. I don't know. You opened it up to a whole new class of people who, well, Michael Hafar, you're shaking your head. No, I don't think so, Scott. I'm sorry. And I, I am, uh, I, you know, for my long term survival on your show, I hate to disagree with you. But I think that there is really there's really never been a great benefit to Scott splitting and stock splitting. Um, you know, they did it when they wanted to let a broader base of investors in. But with fractional shares, if somebody wants to invest ten thousand dollars into Amazon, they have the ability to do it. Sure, it's more fun to have 100 shares of something. But practically for portfolio managers and professional investors, stock split means absolutely nothing. The valuation doesn't change. If anything, you know, it might increase their bookkeeping costs a little bit. Well, I'm surprised I literally have nobody on the on the show who thinks that it would be a decent idea. Not that I need, you know, the gratification we, of somebody we can, agreeing we can with call me. Weiss. I'm just surprised. I didn't say it was a bad idea. I didn't say it's a I, bad idea, Scott. I, I just I, well, yeah, I, I mean, don't you think did it needs it. to be the first move. You, you did dismiss it. No, right? but I, I mean, you, if you're buying a fractional but, share, what rights you, do you really have as a shareholder? I mean, you're you know, OK, so you're in the game point. with a, you know, a spoonful. Scott. Yeah, Pete. I think it comes down to valuations. Scott, I hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Scott, I, I go Pete go first and then Rich. Scott, I would be on. The, I would be on the side that you're talking about. Actually, I was just sitting and listening. But I mean, the reality to me is. It does open things up a little bit in a different way. People feel more comfortable. You said it exactly right, I think. Do they want to buy 10 shares? No, they don't want to buy 10 shares. Even though the dollar amounts are the same and the movement is the same, we all understand that, the mechanisms of what exactly a split means. But the reality is, why then has Apple split on multiple occasions? Why then did Tesla choose to split their stock price? I think they did that so that they could give themselves a position where they are more attractive to the public in general. So I, I do disagree with what, what I was hearing there. And I think the reality is it does open it up because people don't want. Yeah, they can. They'll do the fractional shares. But that really isn't what people want. And by the way, the fractional shares, that, that becomes a problem, and, and especially in my derivatives market, for people who are doing what I do, which is buy rights all the time. When you're doing that, you need at least 100 shares to cover your options. So I, I think there are multiple reasons why it makes That's sense and point. why they might choose to do that. Well, I mean, didn't hear, Rich, too many people complaining when Apple split the stock. No, but I, in the end, I think it comes down to valuations. And coming into this earnings season... The big five were valued roughly at 28% of the entire S&P, but their earnings represented 23% of the S&P. So while their multiples have gone up, uh, their representation of the EPS of the S&P has gone up also. And then you have to look at free cash flow. And when you look at the free cash flow of these companies, if you exclude Apple and take the other four, they did $100 billion in CapEx last year and that is a 25 percent increase over the year prior so if we're talking about amazon they had 30 billion dollars of capex last year and reported 23 billion of earnings if you look at google the numbers are a bit reversed 34 billion of free cash flow and 23 billion of capex so what we have here are companies that are incredibly large they're borrowing at close to 1% right now when they come to the debt markets. 
They're reinvesting in amazing new transformational technological businesses, and that's going to continue to grow their companies. When we talk about splitting the stock, it's still the same pizza pie, right? So investors in the end are going to look at cash flow and EPS and the representation within that sector. Sure. Of course, it's the same pizza, just cut up a different way. But you allow more people to have a piece of the pizza, right? That's the you, point. Yeah. Why should somebody have pizza envy when they I can have a slice? It's, really good. it's a different indexes. type of pizza. <laughs> but we're talking about Scott, the one, it, it Scott, allows the one for way a different. Hold on. I mean, look at the transformation of indexing right now. So the representation in the broad indices of these large tech companies continues to grow. So investors can simply buy the index and they're getting more and more of this large tech, whether it's the Russell Gross, the NAS or the S&P. They're highly weighted towards growth right now. And you can make an argument that, oh, now Tesla's in there selling at a thousand times earnings. So, yes, there could be risk to the S&P, but there are other ways to represent a portfolio within this large tech universe. What a topic. I mean, my phone's blowing up about it. Twitter's blowing up about it. I'm getting emails about it. Joe? Scott, one quick point, and and I always like to think where I'm wrong, and this is where you and Pete might be right, but if if, uh, Andy Jassy wants to be viewed as that kind of Main Street stock in an index, well, if he wants to go in the Dow Jones, then I would tell him you need to split your stock because that's the only way you're getting in. So if he has that affinity, then that's the right Yes, move. of course. It's the only way they could get in is by doing that. I mean, it's the ultimate Main right. Street company, right? I mean, it literally is the ultimate everybody company. Yeah. Jan? You convinced me. That's exactly what I was just going to say. I mean, I, I think this is different. Pete, what Pete pointed out and what, you know, I think Joe and I were talking about to some extent um, is, you know, why you're buying this stock and why you want to own this stock. And so you're right. You know, if you ask my kids what stock they want to buy, they want to buy Amazon because they know that company and they know that that brings stuff to the door. That's in many cases for them. So I don't disagree with you if you want to appeal, but it's not just about appealing to getting exposure. To Pete's point, how do you want to use that exposure? How do you want to garner that exposure? And what way are you using it in your portfolio? Because if it's buy and hold, if it's a fractional share, you buy and hold the fractional share. If it's not, and you want to use it in a more active capacity, you're right, in the current form, at the price it's at right now, that's almost impossible for, yeah. most, for most individual investors yeah. to do. I'm going to say, if, you know, if, you're, if your whole mission is sort of you know, to be transformative in the way that, that every person on planet Earth shops, uh, be transformative in the way that you think that everybody can get a piece of your pizza, too. L- let me go through a, a few of the moves um, that you guys are making, too, because I, I find those interesting. And it speaks to maybe the, the broader view of, of the market. Rich Saperstein, you have new buys. Um, I mentioned your view on, on growth and tech, but Bank of America, City. Let's go through those first. Bank of America and City, new buys for you. Is that a what is that a, a interest rate play? No. So. Uh what we did recently was reduce our exposure to uh, defense sector following the election. And we really overweighted now the payment processing system. Um, and that included some of the banks. Um, but the payment processors, basically, it's a $50 trillion global addressable market 
that's only 30% penetrated. And this starts with when you go to swipe your credit card in a store, all the way to the network controls, the software involved in evaluating that, all the way to the actual networks of Visa and MasterCard. So that whole scheme of e-money, as we call it, is a major theme of ours going forward. Now, how the banks fit in, we added the banks as a result of their ability now to return capital. Because returning the capital, they're, they're, they're generating high levels of free cash flow. The return on, on um, tangible equity is very high now. And we think that they'll initiate more and more buybacks. They over-reserved for uh, bad loans. So we think there's some movement that could occur in the banks. And plus, as I mentioned, we're very overweight growth and we needed to sort of uh, move a little bit towards the value to, to you know, take advantage of um, some of the reopenings and vaccine distribution that will enable the economy to grow over the second half of the year. Yeah, I mean, you bought more JP Morgan, you've got uh, bought more Disney, you bought more Walmart. That plays into that. You know, Joe, I, I teased on Twitter before the show began uh, the rebalancing that your ETF did. And I'll tell you what, you know, it, it brings with it some pretty interesting moves, um, some surprising ones, uh, I think it's fair to say. So the stocks that you now added to the Joe T ETF, Tesla and Shopify. Now, again, you correct me if I'm wrong. This is about momentum and it's about quality. Why does Tesla Correct. and Shopify fit in that in that basket? So it's, it's important in the index methodology that the stocks that are contained are representative of the modern day approach to investing and that there's a focus on, yes, momentum, but also the balance sheet. And, and, and by the way, OK, 77 days since this has been introduced, OK, it is slightly underperforming the S&P. But if I were to look back to January 11th, it was outperforming. So I want a larger body of time and I want to make sure that the balance sheet is so incredibly important. Year to date, weak balance sheets are outperforming strong balance sheets by 5%. Now, in the case of Tesla, unequivocally, and Shopify, they are moving towards a much better balance sheet. Scott EBITDA, in the last 12 months for Tesla, grew 1,000%. If you look at the liabilities on the balance sheet short term, they've got $13 billion. Longer term, they have $14 billion. They've got about $15 billion worth of cash, and they have the ability to earn their way through it. So what's happening here is Tesla is evolving not only as a strong momentum name, but also a strong quality name because of its balance sheet. And in the case of Shopify, you're seeing revenue growth annualized over the last three years above 50%. That's the same type of shift that you want to introduce in a modern day strategy. So... So when you're considering um, quality, that word, mm -hmm. valuation doesn't play into it at all. Because by most metrics, you could, everything you could have said is right. If you look at, you know, valuations of those stocks, that's going to be a lot higher than some people would be comfortable with, perhaps. So how do you factor in the valuation of a company that you're trying to add into your index? Well, the quarterly rebalance kind of takes care of, of two things, the concern about concentration risk and the concern that you're talking about with valuation. Now, you could go back historically, and we've been talking about Amazon. 
And you could see how Amazon has begun to grow into its valuation. And by studying the balance sheet and the paradigm shift that you're seeing to a stronger uh, fundamental sheet, that's where you're moving more towards having the type of quality and growing into the valuation that you want to be represented in this index. Did I look at this thing wrong? Is Intel in there? So Intel, unfortunately, was <laughs> removed. And the, re and the reasoning behind it, yeah. listen, from a quality standpoint, <laughs> yeah. it is very strong. But from a momentum perspective, reflecting back 12 months, remember the stock was $68 12 months ago. So it falls out because of that criteria. Yeah, I'm just trying to think of on both metrics, you know, mo momentum and, and, and quality for a, a name like that uh, seems somewhat suspect. Just being judged as a stock. All right. Anyway, well, I, I'm sorry, Joe. I, think I, I, shouldn't, have, I shouldn't have I shouldn't have uh, prompted you there. I, I, let me take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll get to more of the sure. moves. I'll let you finish your thought on the other side. We've got a lot more ahead, too. You can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back on the half right after this. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Sue Herrera. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. New Jersey is loosening COVID restrictions on many indoor businesses and gatherings. Capacity limits, limits rather, are being raised from 25 percent to 35 percent with a 150 person maximum. The new rules go into effect on Friday. In Pennsylvania, an Amazon warehouse has been evacuated due to heavy snow on the roof that's actually bending the support beams. Officials are trying to make sure all of the more than 200 employees are out of that building. That is the sound of protest in Myanmar. People banging pots and pans and honking their horns in opposition to the military coup on Monday. Today, police charged the ousted president with possessing illegal walkie-talkies, giving legal basis to detain her for at least a month. And around Los Angeles, a report of a man with a gun turned into a six-hour-long pursuit, much of it at low speeds. People even gathered on overpasses to see it go by. The chase ended peacefully. The driver was arrested without incident. It's always in L.A., Scott. Every time. It's always it in Los Angeles. Yeah. All right, Sue, thank you. You got it. All right, Sue Herrera. Okay, Joe, let me get back to you. You know, because I, I think when you when you first mentioned the Joe T uh, ETF, you, you had a fair amount of engagement from our viewers uh, who may have gotten involved as a result of you talking about it. Uh, sure. Nike and Home Depot were also uh, added, and Merck and MasterCard were removed. Can you go through that for our viewers, please? Sure. So... In the case of Nike and Home Depot, I think it would be surprising that it wasn't already included in the index. The problem was that you had strong momentum throughout 2020, but you were trailing back on comps for revenue growth, looking at debt to equity and return on equity that were weak. Because of the pandemic, Scott, in 2020, you've seen a revival 
in revenue growth for both Nike and Home Depot. So now you have strength of momentum and you have the quality factor improving as well to where together collectively both these names can be introduced into the index. It's the right timing for it. You have to take that signal. Personally, I added back Home Depot in my personal portfolio listening to the index. As it relates to Merck and MasterCard, I'm going to ask my friend Pete Nigerian a question. Pete, one year ago today, where do you yep. think MasterCard was trading? Because I don't think people will get this right. Yeah, uh, I would say it's at least doubled. Is that right? <laughs> so one year ago today, MasterCard, Scott, was trading $330. Do you know where it's trading today? $330. So the momentum oh. for MasterCard, surprising to everyone has absolutely collapsed. In addition to that, the revenue growth over the prior four quarters is actually down 14%. So that has come out of the index. The same story for Merck. One year ago, it was trading at 90. Revenue growth over the prior four quarters is down 7%. I'm disappointed that Merck has fallen out of the index because personally, I owned it. But I have to follow the rules-based methodology. And if the index is going to be taking Merck, and pulling it out, I'm going to have to get out of it my personal portfolio, which is what I did. I added one name, Hologic. I know the CEO is on with Jim Cramer tonight. COVID testing, women's health testing. Hologic screens very high in terms of both quality and momentum, and it's been added to the index. Okay. Pete, you can get him back. You can hit him with some options, obscure options-related <laughs> question. All right? You get him back later. Don't worry about that. I'll give you the opportunity, too. Yeah, it's all okay? good. I know what that's Sorry, like. Pete. You get hit with a question. You don't even know what he's talking about. All right. Sorry, Pete. <laughs> all right. Uh, Michael Farr. It's all uh, good. You bought Visa and you bought more Raytheon. Talk to me. Yep. Uh, you know, Visa, I think I'm actually following on Rich's earlier theme of that global market uh, when it comes to finance and e-money, as he described it. Visa takes a fee every time you run, you run the charge. Uh, 10% grower, I think it's reasonable, and, and uh, I think it's a good, solid name. I hope it didn't just get thrown out of Joe's portfolio, uh, because. but I really <laughs> like that he has a discipline. When I look Still at Raytheon, you know, uh, that's... I've had, okay, good, okay, so I'm, as long as I'm with Joe, I feel a lot better, and I think maybe I'm even with Rich on my visa. On Raytheon, uh, the synergies of the uh, merger with UTX are still be coming, are benefiting the company. I think that this geared turbofan engine is just going to be a game changer still for several years to come. Uh, so I added to that position. I've added a new position there in Visa. You know, I'm not a trader. So I, will ho I hope to have those positions for three to five years. I like the fundamentals, and I like the way they balance my core portfolio. Pete, what about you? What do you got going on? You know what? I've, I've continued to add more and more to the financials themselves. I've added, I already had Wells Fargo. I added a little bit to that. I added a little bit to uh, Bank of America as well. So I found myself getting more exposure. I've sold a few things, but not too many. As a matter of fact, just this week, uh, in the last couple of days, the only thing that I've really gotten rid of uh, previously I did over the weekend, Friday and then Monday, but since the Monday show was just Cloudera. And that was only because the options doubled or more than doubled so i figured it was time to exit and move on so i'm i'm just trying to be as disciplined i mean we all talk about discipline all the time 
That's what these markets are about, is having the discipline to be able to say, you know what, I might still love this, but I'm going to get rid of it for now, and I'll look at it another time and see if it's a, if it's a better time to re-enter into a trade. So the trading volumes have been off the charts, as you know, Scott. We had another 41 million contracts again yesterday, so uh, volumes are, are at an absolute unbelievable record pace again. January was awesome, continues now, and I continue to trade along with it. You throw in Weiss a commission on that Jumia? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I love my man Weiss, and he has been very, very right on this one. But we did have some unusual option activity in this one, and uh, it, it, it made me get back in it as well. I've been in this one as a trade on many times. This is a very, very volatile stock, as we all know. Yeah. And I'm only in it with the options, because I think if I was in it as a stock, I, I, I think you'd have a really difficult time holding on during some of the tougher times. It's a lot easier when you've got the options in place. I'm only asking you that because I'm channeling him, and you know he's thinking that. If he was on the show right now, <laughs> oh, he would sure. have told you that for a stock that's up 275% over the last three months. We'll come back yeah. to you, Pete, in just a little bit for unusual yeah. activity. As we go to break, let's check the S&P sectors today. S&P is good for eight, a fifth of a percent, led by energy. We're back after this. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash report. That is linkedin.com slash report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash report and get started. All right, we're back. I'm back to you, Pete. Unusual. What do you have for us? Sure. I'm going to hit you with Alcoa. You know that I've been talking about this material space for a, for a period of time now, and it continues to have some very strong activity. As a matter of fact, on January 22nd in Alcoa, they bought about 10,000 of the April 21 calls, Scott. They're back again today, buying another 5,500 of those calls. Stock about the same place. Those options about the same place. They're going for about $1.40. And after I saw that hit, a couple minutes later, we even had the July calls getting hit. Matter of fact, they were buying the July 25 calls, a nice size there of about 10,000 of those. So pretty aggressive buying. Stock about 19, paying about a duck, a dollar 40 or so for those options. So I like this. I'll be in this for a couple months. I actually added to a position that I already had in Alcoa. Next up, I've got Up Fintech. Now, you probably haven't heard of this one. Symbol Tiger, T-I-G-R. This one's pretty interesting. It's a Chinese online broker and very, very interesting activity in this one, Scott. As a matter of fact, they're coming after 8,000 of the February 30 calls. Those are decently out of the money because the stock at the time was trading just underneath 23. They were paying about $1.85 for these, so they were fairly expensive. They're spreading these off, so they're buying the February 30s, selling the February 35 calls. Very, very smart move. I jumped on that trade as well. I'll be in that one for about two and a half weeks or thereabouts. I love what I'm seeing here. This is a stock, I will warn you, that's already jumped and it's trading near its 52-week highs. So this is an, uh, somebody out there who thinks the stock has a little bit more room to the upside. I've totally heard of that. Totally. Yeah, have you really? No. No. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 
Ask Halftime coming up next. You. Send in your questions by video. We will play them on the air. I haven't done this in a while. Looking forward to doing that. Ask, uh, email us, askhalftime at cnbc.com. And CNBC's Capital Exchange event is back today at 2 o'clock Eastern. Kayla Tausche leading a critical conversation about the new economic agenda with Biden economic advisor Jared Bernstein and Business Roundtable President and CEO Josh Bolton. To register, you can visit cnbcevents.com slash capital exchange. We're back on the half right after this. All right, welcome back. Let's answer your questions now. First up, Joe, to you, a question from Dave in Brooklyn. What is the most straightforward way to invest in natural gas? Is there an ETF focused on that? Joey, you go. I don't like the ETFs because it's tracking the underlying future and you introduce Contango where you're paying higher to stay in the trade for a future contract. So I play it through EQT, CNX. Those are two of the better natural gas plays. And again, they have strong balance sheets. Okay, Pete, got a video question for you. Let's listen in. Questions about two stocks. Number one, Twitter. It's breaking out. Is the run going to continue? And secondarily, Viacom. Will they ever get credit for the monstrous content library they have? Okay, that's from Brian in Michigan. Pete, what's the answer? Sure. So, Brian, I'll tell you, tell you this. Viacom does have an unbelievable library of content, but they also have a pretty short interest uh, that's pretty high, and they also have an amazing amount of debt. So there's a lot of different factors there and the possibility that that could have a little bit of a squeeze just because of the short. I think in terms of Twitter, I love this name. I think there's a lot more upside. They had a great run into the elections. I don't think it's over with, so I think, yes, I'm, I'm holding the stock. I think it goes higher. Okay, thank you for that, Pete. Thank you as well for the question. Shannon, I got a video one for you. Let's watch this. Hey, Halftime. It's Brandon Harvey from Easton, Connecticut. want to get your thoughts on Alibaba. I currently have a position that I'm looking to add to, and I want to know if you'd be a buyer of this most recent pullback. Thanks. Thank you for the question, Shan. A buyer at all recent pullbacks, I, I think, is the right answer there. Um, so there's you got to compartmentalize the fact that there's a bit of this CEO question, um, and then there's the potential for kind of improving relations with China from the Biden administration. But most importantly, this is the world's largest e-commerce platform. It's continuing to grow, and it's a great way to garner exposure to the Chinese consumer, which we've all been trying to do through U.S. large cap stocks for the last decade. Okay, good stuff. Rich Saperstein to you. Dominic in Youngstown, Ohio. Uh, wants to know about the idea of maybe selling Salesforce, taking the profits, and going into Boeing. What do you think about that? I own them both. I would not sell CRM to buy BA. Uh, CRM is a $20 billion mass of recurring revenue, growing 20% a year, large moat around their business, 70% growth, gross margins, and a very large addressable market. I'd hold CRM. Okay, lastly, Michael Farr to you from Michael in Darien, Connecticut, says he bought Valmont based on your recommendation at $110. It just went over 200. So now what's the advice to Michael? Michael, congratulations. Nobody ever went broke taking a profit. If you need to trim, trim based for you. But uh, it's on my top 10 list. I'm going to continue to hold it. It's a 10% grower. I continue to like the name. That was one of your best uh, ideas for, for 2021, wasn't it, Michael? Yes, sir. And even after that run, so fingers are crossed, but the uh, fundamentals are improving. I like this story. It's a play on infrastructure, Scott. All right. Appreciate that, Michael. Uh, VMI uh, watching those shares today, too. Okay. The dollar hitting two-month highs today. We'll find out how the futures traders plan that. And we'll do it next. 
Uh, let's do the futures outlook now. The dollar hitting a fresh two-month high. Let's bring in Brian Stutland for that trade. Does the momentum, Stutz, continue? I think it does, Scott. I mean, when you're looking at the momentum there, we're seeing higher lows, higher highs. To me, that's a turning point to move higher. And when you look at some of the fundamentals out there, really, when we saw a lot of volatility come in this marketplace, there was a huge flow into the U.S. dollar, which typically happens. Also, restriction of travel, albeit good for health, is some, somewhat concerning. And so people, again, rush into the U.S. dollar. So I think, although it's maybe not the best thing to own, I'd rather own maybe Bitcoin or other currency metals and whatnot, rather than the currency of the U.S. dollar. But that's the next best thing. So I'm a buyer here. I think we had a breakout. We bounced off the 90 level. I'm a buyer at that 91.20 level, looking for it to trade up to 92.10. And I'd have a stop down at 90.40. Now, what I'm looking at this, I'm looking at the March futures contract. So that ticker symbol, DXH1, um, each penny move is $10. So basically, I'm risking $800 to make $900. I think the technicals line up. There might be some headwinds a little bit higher up, Scott. But I think we get to those. You could take some profits. I'm more of a buyer here than I would be a seller. I think we've maybe turned the corner as we see interest rates tick up now. All right. Good stuff. Appreciate that. I'll see you soon. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll do final trades next. All right. Let's do final trades. Shan, you're up first. Uh, EA Sports. Um, a little bit of a disappointment on the guide here. So uh, it's down today, but it's a good time to pick up the stock. You don't okay. want it. It's in the game. Uh, ooh, down 6%. Michael Farr, what do you got? CVS, I'm stubborn on this one, Scott. Ten times earnings, growing earnings at 11%, a 2.8% dividend. The vaccines are rolling out. The stock price isn't moving enough, but I'm still hung, holding in there. Mr. Hightower, Treasury Partners, top financial advisor. What do you got, Rich Safferstein? Uh, it's a small cap, a $10 billion utility that generates $2 billion a year in free cash flow. And they're redeploying that to get more green, which would be consistent with the Biden administration. So it sells at 10 times earnings, 2.7% dividend yield. Uh, take a look for cash flow. Okay, good stuff. Good to see you again. Pete? 10 years going higher. I think these financials continue to go higher. I'm looking at City, Scott. I bought calls during the show. All right, Joe, lastly and quickly to you. Pin duo duo. Give Brad Gerstner credit for that one. All-time high. All right, good stuff. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.